Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It was 1989, and it was Thanksgiving weekend, and we had gone to my parents and my wife's parents about 50 miles away to visit with them for the weekend. We were headed home that Saturday night. It was dark. It was drizzling rain just a little bit. We were traveling north on State Route 43, and we were only about three miles from our house. There was an older couple who had come from their homes over in Youngstown, Ohio, and they'd come to Hartville, Ohio, where we lived, for a wedding that night. And the Burford family, they were headed home, traveling east. The Burfords were a very well-known Mennonite couple. Mr. Burford was a retired Mennonite preacher. We lived in a community where there were many Mennonites and Amish folks. We were traveling north at 45 miles an hour in our 1985 Pontiac Bonneville. And they were traveling east in their 1970-something powder blue Ford Pinto. I can see that Ford Pinto in my mind as clearly this morning as I did that night. He missed the stop sign. The car that I was driving hit his car right at his wife's door. She was taken to Alliance Community Hospital and she died shortly afterwards. I hated that Sunday morning sitting my children down and explaining to them that the car that their father was driving and the car they were in had hit this other car and Miss Eileen Burford now is dead. I hated sharing that story. I was in no condition to preach that morning, Saturday night. We had gone to the hospital, my wife and I. She was injured far more than I was and was on crutches for a while. And I remember how overwhelmed I felt trying to explain to the elders about what had happened and how that I knew I wasn't going to be able to preach the next morning. When it came time for Mrs. Burford's memorial service, it was at that same Mennonite church building in Hartville, Ohio, where they had attended that wedding ceremony that night of the accident. And in the course of the ceremony, recognizing her life and her death, Mr. Burford recognized me, and I was sitting right in the middle of a packed house. Everybody knew the Burfords. Anybody in eastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, or West Virginia, they knew the Burford family. And in that packed house, he noticed me. And he called me out by name and asked me to stand. And then he proceeded to thank me for helping get his wife to heaven. 
I was a young man in my 30s and had no idea how to respond to that. I was overwhelmed. When our daughter, our youngest daughter, was 10 years old, she was diagnosed with a pretty common neurological problem called hydrocephalus. She had a constriction or restriction in a cerebral aqueduct that was causing a buildup of fluid and her brain was being pushed up against her skull and no telling how long that that had been happening. When we took her to a neurology doctor, the neurology doctor assured us that this was a pretty common issue. And as a neurosurgeon, also he could take care of that. So the surgery was performed. Half of her head was shaven. She had the shunt implanted into her head and the tube running down into her body, through her body down to her stomach. 30 days later in the first post-op visit, when we thought things were fine, things were not fine. As a matter of fact, things were worse now than they were at the start. She had developed bilateral subdural hematomas. She was bleeding on both sides of her brain. When the pressure was relieved inside of her skull and her brain began to recede from the top of the skull, then there was bleeding that occurred that started pushing her brain down. We were sent to Rainbow Baby and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, a part of the University Hospitals of Cleveland. And at that hospital, there was one, and only one, pediatric neurosurgeon. Between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Detroit, Michigan, there was only one pediatric neurosurgeon. His name was Dr. Mapstone, and he took us under his wing. Our daughter spent 33 days in the hospital there. A great deal of that time, she was in a comatose-like state. During that summer, she had five brain surgeries. Nothing seemed to go right. At every turn, things kept popping up. That was bad news. I remember between, I think, the third and the fourth surgery, when we left our daughter in the pre-surgical room and headed to the waiting room, I remember as my wife and I were holding ourselves, walking toward that family waiting room, I remember my wife saying, I never want to walk down this hall again. And within 48 hours, we found ourselves walking down that hall again. We were overwhelmed. We were scared to death. I remember one particular time when Dr. Mapstone came into the, the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. I don't remember anything that he said except this. He said, neurosurgeons are often the bearers of bad news. I think I know now. I didn't at the time, but I think I know now why he said that. I think he was prepping us for what he thought was the most likely scenario. Things did not look good. 
She was unresponsive. Didn't matter whether you touched her or talked to her, she was totally unresponsive. We were stressed to the max and we were overwhelmed. Neither one of us had ever gone through anything like that before. One day, my wife, who was by her side all the time, one day my wife, next to the bed, was sitting and she bit onto a raw carrot. She started chewing it. You know that sound? What's that noise? Those were the first words from our daughter as she came out of that comatose-like state. Those were sweet words. What's that noise? But now there's more problems. She has to be taught how to walk. She has to be taught how to feed herself again. She has months and months of both physical and occupational therapy. If you saw her today, and some of you saw her, Friday night and yesterday, you would never know that she had gone through such a thing. Praise the Lord. But boy, were we ever overwhelmed. When my wife was in her early 50s, she took long showers. I just dismissed it as a male, thinking that that's what women do. But that was the first sign that she had Parkinson's disease. She had bradykinesia, which basically means she was living in a slow motion world and that's why it took her so long to take a shower. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about Parkinson's disease except the tremors and she didn't have those. As a matter of fact, her primary care physician said in looking at some of her issues, well, you don't have Parkinson's disease. But then eventually through our journey, when we got to the neurologist, it took him about 15 minutes to diagnose her with Parkinson's disease. She lost the ability to get up out of a chair. She lost the ability to walk. She lost the ability to even ambulate with a walker. She fell and had to be picked up. She lost the ability to feed herself. She lost the ability to talk. And have you ever tried to caregive effectively with someone who cannot communicate with you by words? During the eight and a half years that she was afflicted with that horrible neurological disease, I was her caregiver and at times I thought I was going to snap. If you know somebody who is presently caregiving, please, Pray for them and then live a life consistent with your prayers. Love them, help them, support them. They need help. There were times I left her side. I would go up to the bathroom and with tears streaming down my face, I would speak a three-word prayer. Lord, help me. That is all I could think to say. I couldn't even function mentally. To be able to talk to a loving father about a time of desperation in my life. So all I said was, Lord, help me. Some of those days and some of those nights 
were nightmarish. I was exhausted all the time. But at the same time, I never permitted myself to go into a deep sleep because I knew if I did, and if she needed help, I might not be able to hear. I was overwhelmed. And then on Christmas morning, at 9.40 in the morning, 2013, I watched her draw her last breath. With me on her right side and our firstborn child on her left. Life can be overwhelming. It can be so difficult and so stressful, so burdensome, that we might feel like we're going to snap because we have that feeling of being overwhelmed. What is it to be overwhelmed? I looked in a dictionary and tried to find a, a dictionary definition, and I really couldn't find one that was adequate. But I ran across a couple of synonyms. One is submerge, and then that other one, crushed. When you're feeling overwhelmed, that's what you're feeling. You're feeling crushed. You're feeling as if you are just drowning. You're submerged in the negativity of your life. And that causes you to have all kinds of thoughts and feelings. And in many cases, you've never had them before, so you don't know what to do with them. What should we do when we're overwhelmed in our life? Well, in Psalm 31, David writes about a time in his life, and I'm not sure exactly when this was in his life, but he writes about a time in his life when there is no question but that he is overwhelmed. And let me share with you why I know that for a fact. If you begin in verse 9 and you look at this psalm, he says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies. But especially among my neighbors. And I am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. If you look at this psalm, and I'm holding a copy of the New King James Version. If you look at this psalm, he references trouble in verse 7. The word adversities is also in verse 7. The word trouble occurs again in verse 9. In verse 11, the word reproach. At the end of verse 11, the word repulsive. Broken at the end of verse 12. Slander in verse 13. And then in verse 15, persecute. David was in a period in his life when he was overwhelmed. Now here's this great man of faith. This person that we often put up on a pedestal for good reason. A man after God's own heart. And yet look at the life that he's living. He's living a life 
that has so dramatically impacted him that he is a mess. He is hanging on by a thread. He is overwhelmed. See, it happens to good people just like it happens to bad people. Isn't it interesting that we never question about bad people suffering? We just kind of expect that to happen. That just seems right. After all, you reap what you sow. But then what about the good people? One step greater than that, how about the people of God? And yet we live in a sinful world, a fallen world, where bad stuff happens and there's a lot of collateral damage and you don't have to be guilty to be burdened to the point that you're going to snap. That's how you feel. Isn't it funny, sad funny, that when bad things happen to us, we wonder why in the world God is doing this to us? Or we say, why has God permitted this to happen to us? And yet I've never heard one person say anything in regard to blaming the devil. It's as if we don't believe in the devil. Well, we live in a world that's a fallen world. We're not in paradise. This is not the Garden of Eden. It's just like Dorothy said to Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. In this world, you will have tribulations. John 16, 33. Job got so bad in regard to the struggle that he was having internally because of his external burdens he was bearing, that he said his life was full of trouble, Job 14.1. He said in Job 7, verse 6, he had no hope. He had God, but yet he said he had no hope. He had hope because he had God, but he wasn't feeling it. He was overwhelmed. When we find ourselves in overwhelming life circumstances, we can really struggle. Even if we have great faith and we've been Christians for a long time. And the reason for that is really, really simple. You're human. You're not a machine. You're a human being. All of us have a thinker and a feeler. And our thinker and our feeler are not always on the same page. Sometimes our thinker and feeler are not in the same book or the same library. And we can be a mess internally. And we're a mess because we're human beings who live in a fallen world. And sometimes we're going to struggle. What in the world should we do when we're overwhelmed? David tells us what to do. Number one, trust God. Look at how many times in this psalm he brings that up. Right out of the chute in verse 1. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Drop down to verse 6. He says, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And then look at verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. What is trust? You know, I think there's a little bit of an indication of that in verse 15. 
When he says, right after he says, I trust in you, O Lord, he says, my times are in your hand. And then there's verse 5 that we most often link with Jesus on the cross. But it was first spoken by David. In your hand, I commit my spirit. Whenever the children go to school, that's an entrustment. Our children are taken to the school and we are entrusting the welfare of our child or children to the care of the people at that school. Whenever we find child care for our children because we want a date night, we'll usually check on some teenager at church and we'll pay that teenager We'll entrust that teenager with our children. By the way, if you have need of child care, I recommend checking with grandparents first. Do you know there are grandparents who will actually pay to take care of your children? You could put that in your child's college fund. But that's trust. When you take money to the bank, you turn your money over to the bank. That's an entrustment. Trust in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, I'm sure you've heard this verse. You've read it many times. Have you thought about how powerful this verse is? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That passage tells us what to do. Trust. In whom we should trust. In the Lord. How we should do that with all of our heart and what that means. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him. Let him direct your paths. That's what David was doing. I know that because notice here this plea at the end of verse 3. Lead me and guide me. That's trusting in the Lord. A humble recognition of the fact that we need understanding, that we need direction, that we need help. I have news for you. You do not know everything about anything. Nor does anybody else, even though they may claim that they do. We all need to learn things. We don't always understand even the things that we learn. We need direction and we need help. To be overwhelmed is to be dominated by our feelings. When we're dominated by our feelings, our thinker doesn't function as clearly and normally as typical. So we are at risk at that point. So what we need to do is trust in somebody who does understand who does know, we need to lean upon his direction in our life. Trust God. But could we be frank? Could we be honest enough to admit that that is not always an easy thing to do? Could we at least be that transparent to admit that? I'm a huge fan of a young lady named Lauren Daigle who sings faith-based songs. One of the songs that she sings is a song 
She's titled Trust in You. In the lyrics of that song, I want to read to you just a portion. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. When we're overwhelmed, the first and most important thing is to understand our need to trust in the Lord. Number two, we need to remember the goodness of God. Never permit your negative circumstances in your life blind you to the goodness of God and the abundance of your blessings. And David didn't let it happen in his life. Yes, he was like a broken vessel. He was a mess. But look at what he references in verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. I find it interesting that often when there is a reference to a characteristic of deity, there is an adjective or a modifier of that characteristic. Notice the reference to goodness in verse 19. How great, there's the modifier, how great is your goodness. And then when kindness is referenced in verse 21, marvelous kindness. God has abundant goodness and amazing kindness. And he is that way all the time. See, our circumstances can be bad. From our perception, we can say sometimes, honestly, sincerely, as we look at our life, our life is bad. And I totally understand that. But one thing we've got to remember is God's still good. Our life may be bad. We may feel overwhelmed. But God is still good. I find it interesting that in the book of Nahum, a book about judgment, there's this declaration in Nahum 1 verse 7. For the Lord is good and a strong hold in day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. See, the Lord's always good. James 1 in verse 17 says, He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. As a matter of fact, there's not a shadow cast by turning. In other words, he's consistently always the giver of good and perfect gifts. Could we be honest enough to admit the fact that there are times that we live in circumstances that cause us to forget about the goodness of God. Sometimes our burdens blind us to our blessings. That's what happened to Job. If you're reading the book of Job, please don't just read the first two chapters and then chapter 42. There's a lot of good stuff in chapter 3 through chapter 41. Job was blinded to his blessings. He said his life was full of trouble. 
his life was not full of trouble. Now, maybe from our human perspective, it seemed like it. He was certainly feeling that way. But even at his worst, when he was burdened the most, he still was blessed more than he was burdened. He was still living. Where there's life, there's hope. He still had a wife. She may not have been the best wife in the world, but you know how many of us would love to have a mate again? He was blessed with friends. Three friends who dropped everything, traveled to where he was, and ministered to him by their presence. It is awesome to have friends. And they came for the right reason. They came to mourn him and comfort him. Read chapter 2. It was only when they opened their mouth that they morphed eventually into miserable comforters. Job had friends. And more than anything, Job had God. The God of hope who was watching over him and providentially caring for him and protecting him. Job was abundantly blessed when he said his life was full of troubles. See, we can feel a certain way, but it not actually be that way. That's one of the problems with being human. My children grew up with the Smurfs. Gargamel and Azrael were the enemies. They were always looking to make the Smurfs toast. In one episode, it was the perfect scenario. All the Smurfs were together. Gargamel and Azrael created a ring of fire around them. And they were going to become toasts. But Papa Smurf, the wise, smart Papa Smurf, said, Smurfs, sing with me. Sing with me, Smurfs. I'll spare you the melody. I'll quote you the lyrics. Goodness makes the badness go away. Goodness makes you happy every day. Badness cannot start when there's goodness in your heart. Goodness makes the badness go away. I'm not naively suggesting that focusing on the goodness of God is going to cause a disappearance of the trials and troubles in your life. But what I am suggesting is focusing on the goodness of God in the midst of our trials and troubles helps us tremendously because we're in need of comfort and we're in need of hope and direction in our life. And we can find that when we focus our primary attention on the goodness of God that is consistently true, always forever and will be. Remember the goodness of God. And then thirdly, wait on the Lord. Verse 23 and 24 of this psalm, O oh, love the Lord, all his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Some translations say wait on the Lord. One of the books over here on this display table is written by a young lady who's no longer a young lady. She went to school with me at Fried Hardeman. Very wise woman who's a great writer, Rosemary McKnight. And she has this book entitled Those Who Wait. 
That study of that phrase in that book that she wrote is really interesting. That phrase is used about 20 plus times in the Bible. Evidently, it's something that we need to be reminded of and need to be able to learn to do, to wait on on the Lord. My suspicion is maybe this church has even sung that song a few times. Teach me, Lord, to wait. We need to be taught to wait. It's a hard thing for us to wait. And there are times in our life when we are in the Lord's waiting room and we have no earthly idea how long we're going to be there. But there's always blessings in being in the Lord's waiting room. There always is. If we're willing to stay in that waiting room. If you had eggs in an incubator, would you take the eggs out before their time? What about what is inside that cocoon? Do you want it to exit the cocoon? Break that cocoon open before it's time? There is value in being in the Lord's waiting room. It's not always an experience that causes us to be joyful. It can cause us to experience a lot of heartache, a lot of weakness, and feel even desperation. But there's value in it. One of the great things about desperation is that it ought to drive us more passionately to seek intimacy with the Lord than ever before in our life. You know, when we are desperate, I mean desperate, what will we do? Well, we will choose to do things with a passion we've never done before. What we need in our life, when we're struggling in our life, more than ever before, is we need a passionate pursuit of God where we're trusting Him, we're remembering His goodness. We're continuing to depend on Him and serve Him even though we're struggling. If after Bible study this morning you go to a restaurant and a waiter comes, you know, a waiter waits, right? That's why they're called a waiter. So they come, they're your waiter. What do waiters do? Waiters serve. Those who wait on the Lord. Those who keep serving the Lord with a great positive perspective about the future. Isaiah chapter 40 has a pretty well-known passage in it at the end of the chapter. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Please go up to verse 28 and look at the context. It'll help you appreciate that last very famous statement. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and not be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, see the contrast. Don't just focus on the last verse. Go up there at least to verse 28 and look at what he's talking about. God's the one who has the strength. God is the one who has the understanding. And when we are willing to trust him, continue to serve him, and wait on him, not desert him, 
not turn our backs on him, but actually with greater passion pursue intimacy with him, that is how we're able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And there are times in our life that the greatest of victories can just be keep breathing. Life sometimes isn't about coping. It's just about surviving. You have to survive before you can cope. And when you've continued to survive and you've learned coping skills, then you can grow through the experience and become a better person, stronger individual, more capable of helping other people who are struggling in their life than you've ever been before. I'm not suggesting that we plead for the Lord and ask him to give us times of desperation in our lives. I'm simply suggesting we're going to experience those kind of times anyway in our life. And what we need to do when we feel like we are drowning, we are just feeling like we are drowning. What we need to do is trust him. Remember his goodness. Keep waiting on him no matter how long. And it might be even until that time you draw your last breath. When my dad was on that hospital bed, I said, Dad, if you live through this, it'll be grace. Dad, if you die, it'll be glory. I said, either way, Dad, you win. Please remember that. If you're struggling with the burden of sin this morning and you want to be released from that overwhelming burden, there's only one person who can do that for you. And that's the great loving Father in heaven who offered a sacrifice for your benefit. If this morning you need to come and be baptized into Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, we'll certainly help you to do that. If you're struggling with something in your life, some circumstances that have caused you to feel overwhelmed, do you know it's okay to let everybody else in this room know you are not okay? You need help. If that's your situation, feel free to let others know about that. Come and let us see how we can help you. Respond to the invitation if you need to while we stand and while we sing.